0: Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we discuss whether CEOs are paid enough, how to know when it's time to leave a role, and the employment tribunal that could mark the death knell for remote working. That's all on the Leadership Lessons agenda. With me are MT's Antonia Garrett Peel and Eilish Cronin. So first up is CEO pay. By 1pm on Thursday, the 4th of January, just three working days into the new year, the pay of FTSE 100 leaders had already eclipsed the annual median wage for full-time workers, which is £34,963. That's according to figures from the High Pay Centre. So began the annual hand-wringing about whether CEOs are getting paid too much, or, as some argue, too little compared to their international counterparts. Antonio, you've been delving into the details. What have you discovered?
1: Yep, so as you pointed out, Kate, we had this annual milestone on the 4th of January, And its nickname, Fat Cat Thursday, probably says all you need to know about how it will be perceived by many, if not most people. On the other side, we have this large and influential group, including but not limited to city grandees, that's saying, look, if we want to attract the best talent and bolster London's competitiveness and position as a global financial hub, we have to at least have a conversation about increasing CEO pay. They point to the US where the median pay deal for an S&P 500 chief executive in 2022 was $14.2 million, according to our calculations based on figures from Labour Union Federation, AFL-CIO. This compares with median FTSE 100 CEO pay of £3.91 million in the same year. Now, naturally, this is a very unpalatable argument to a lot of people, not least during the cost of living crisis, which, as everybody will be aware, has placed a real strain on many, many households. One particularly salient issue for critics of executive pay was the gap between the incomes of those at the top and the average employee. And this was raised to me by Janet Williamson, Senior Policy Officer for Corporate Governance at the Trades Union Congress. Quote, she said that the TUC's quote-unquote main concern in relation to pay is the issue of fairness. And the key element of that is the relative pay between directors and other workers within the same companies. She points out that everybody within a company is making a contribution, whether to the business's performance, outputs or operations. And she also questioned whether we really want people running our top companies for whom their main incentive is pay. I also spoke to LSE finance professor, Dirk Yunter. He challenged the widely held idea that CEOs being paid less will result in more money for the rest of us. And he referred to an old episode of South Park, obviously our favourite medium for academic analysis. In it, a group of underwear-thieving gnomes come up with a business plan. This consists of three phases. One, collect underpants, and three, profit, while step two is just accompanied by a question mark. And if we relate this to this debate, step one is let's cut CEO pay, Yenta says. Step three is rank-and-file workers get more money. And, to quote him, nobody ever talks about step two. And in fact, the reality is, he says, that the money will just end up in shareholders' pockets. He argued that what we should be focusing on is medium pay in the UK, which he describes as shockingly low, relating it back to the UK's perennial problem, namely productivity.
0: I love the image of underwear thieving gnomes coming up during a discussion about CEOs' pay. Um, But another topic I thought was really interesting in your feature was um, the concern about the brain drain.
1: Yeah, so this was one concern that's kind of often voiced by advocates of boosting CEO pay packets. And it's invoked in an article penned by London Stock Exchange Chief Exec Julia Hoggett last May calling for a quote-unquote constructive discussion on executive pay. She warned that, on our current path, the UK's biggest exports, as she put it, risk becoming, and I'm quoting again, skills, talent, tax revenue, and the companies that generate it. Usually, this executive brain drain argument focuses on the US, where, as I mentioned, the pay packets for CEOs of publicly listed companies are notoriously stratospheric. Interestingly enough though, the people I spoke to didn't for the most part perceive a big threat from the US. Yenta, for example said that your network matters enormously for being hired as a CEO and that that makes the market for these top jobs actually surprisingly local. More likely to keep board members of FTSE firms tossing and turning at night, he suggested, is the threat from private equity owned companies which tend to pay their CEOs more than publicly traded firms. So it's a very knotty topic and there's a lot to unpick. But if that's wet your appetite, keep an eye out for that future, which is coming soon. I think it's a really interesting point because we often look at chief exec
0: salaries in the US and they're much, obviously much, much higher than the UK, um, as you pointed out in your stats. But the idea that actually it's not that much of a concern, it's more these private equity companies that perhaps they don't have the glare of the shareholders. And I guess they're also trying to get people to take jobs that, may require difficult turnarounds or you know some sort of danger pay added to it so I think that's kind of really interesting to unpick and and, it's an interesting feature so on to our next topic which is the big news in the world of football is that Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp is going to step down at the end of the season two years ahead of schedule He released a video in which he praised the club and its supporters before explaining, I love absolutely everything about this club, but that I still take this decision shows you that I am convinced it is the one I have to take. He goes on to say essentially he's running out of energy, that he doesn't have a problem now, he's still at the top of his game, but he knows that in future he won't be able to continue to do the job again and again and again and again. Of course, within days there was speculation about other managerial roles he may be taking, but assuming what he's saying is true... I thought this was another interesting resignation where a senior leader is referencing the toll these big jobs can take on a person. Um, we talked a lot last year about Jacinda Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon, who I appreciate may not be the best examples given that there were kind of political um, you know, wranglings and reasons why they were stepping down. However, to have somebody who is um, widely seen as at the very top of their profession doing a very good job um, to step down in those circumstances is interesting. And I think in our society, we often praise determination, resilience, persistence, um, and it's often only when a decision is forced through ill health or external circumstances that we think it's acceptable for somebody to, to quit. But I think the way he's communicated his decision to step down shows a real sort of self-awareness and understanding um, that I think is an increasingly critical part of being a sort of successful and effective leader.
2: I actually thought he was dead uh, by the <laughs> way that everyone was acting when I saw it on Twitter or the way that people would... Seemed to be mourning the loss of this man. I thought, oh my gosh, Jergen Klopp's dead. No, he's just stepping down. Um, <laughs> the response actually has been surprisingly positive uh, on Twitter. I was sort of expecting a lot of kind of him getting a lot of negativity from people. I'm not a football fan, uh, I'm a casual observer, and my viewings of it, I, I assumed that the fans would be less than sympathetic to his plight so I do think that the tide is turning perhaps on public opinions on mental health especially within sport I do think perhaps though if it was a woman saying this I wonder if people would be as sympathetic um I suppose um Klopp has also put nine years into this job I think it was I think it's nine years so it's not an insignificant amount of time so perhaps the fact that he's kind of put in the graft and he's put in that significant amount of time shows that perhaps there's this sort of toxicity around when we think it's acceptable for somebody to sort of put their hands up and say that they've had enough how many years do you have to put in do you have to sort of reach a certain quota of time before you're allowed to go okay i've had enough now i'd like to to step back perhaps if he hadn't been in the role for that long would people be as sympathetic um, looking through some of the comments on Twitter, there was a lot of people saying that he's earned this rest. But again, how much does one actually have to go through in order to earn that break? You know, should we reward somebody for pushing themselves? And then I think if we kind of relate this to a, in a business sense, again, we often praise the people that push themselves to their limit for the company, people that work ridiculously long hours and stories of sleeping in the office and just running themselves ragged. And then only once they've reached kind of the edge of burnout or had a complete breakdown, do we then deem it acceptable Mm. for them to take a break. Um, When there has been countless uh, research to show that taking frequent breaks is healthy and good for you and should be kind of encouraged as a preventative measure rather than something that you have to earn Mm. and kind of wear yourself out for completely.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's kind of a sign of strength in a way to know your own limits and be like, right, this is me sort of thing. But I think the traditional narrative holds that giving up as it is often perceived is kind of a form of weakness. So it's a really interesting topic. And the fact that he's a man of a certain age who feels comfortable enough to get
2: on camera and say this, and then the response to be, fairly sympathetic towards that I think does show that as I said the tide is turning and public opinion is changing um, on men in particular being
0: open about their own struggles and I I think the other way he did it was wasn't just releasing a video but he also did these very long press conferences where he was really open and honest and talked to people and listened to their questions and gave really kind of good interesting answers and it came across as a very honest open respectful way of talking about that I, th- I think the way he's g- he's gone about that and communicating it has also helped elicit a positive response
2: i also wondered did he do that also to assuage any doubts because when you were you know previously sort of introducing this topic um just now um you said within days there was speculation about other roles and i'm still i'm still seeing that on twitter as well people going is this actually real or is this just a front for him actually moving somewhere else, and he's just not telling everybody. Mm. Um, so I wonder if that was
0: another ploy to sort of assuage those fears, perhaps. Oh, you cynic! He's cynic. <laughs> well, I think he said he's not going to take a managerial role for at least a year, and he's also said he will never ever take another English football club manager role. Um, he said even if he didn't have anything to eat, he still wouldn't do it. So. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say about English reporting? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Next up is a case that may spark the end of remote working. A senior manager at the Financial Conduct Authority took the organization to an employment tribunal after it said she was not allowed to work exclusively from home. Elizabeth Wilson's line manager said that she performed very well at home, but that her request to work remotely all the time would have a negative impact on the department. A letter explaining the decision reads, you will not attend face-to-face training sessions, departmental away days and meetings, and you will not be able to provide face-to-face training or coaching to team members or new joiners. Your ability to input in management strategy meetings and be involved in in in-person collaboration will also be negatively impacted. Now, just for context, Wilson directly managed four staff and had indirect responsibility for a further 10. So she took the FCA to tribunal, but in what will potentially set a precedent for the hybrid work debate, she lost her case. The judge ruled that the office was a better environment for certain interactions and said that there were weaknesses with remote working. He wrote, It is the experience of many who work using technology that it is not well suited to the fast-paced interplay of exchanges which occur in, for example, planning meetings or training events when rapid discussion can occur on topics. He went on to say that a limitation had been identified to the ability to observe and respond to nonverbal communication which may arise outside of the context of formal events but which nonetheless form an important part of working with other individuals. So I think this is fascinating because it shows the power shifting back to the employer and it certainly will embolden leaders who want staff to be in the office more than they currently are.
2: What I hope this won't do is that because we talked a lot about in the past this idea of psychological safety and how important it is to include that when you're creating your company culture to ensure that you have psychological safety and that your employees feel as though they can be kind of 100% themselves in the office at all times so i do worry that going forward that you know if if an employee goes to their employer and tries to make a, plead their case to work from home full-time, that they will use this then as an example to shoot it down. And then as soon as that happens, you know, it's already happened once, what's to say it won't happen again? Perhaps it will create a culture of fear rather than that psychological safety that has been touted as something that's so important within an organisation. And I wonder if this, going back to the idea of employers fighting back, perhaps they're kind of, I think, during COVID, the fact that we all had to work from home Um, Perhaps gave employees a little bit of power because they knew that once we slowly came back to normality, their employers would see how well they did working from home during COVID and we managed to keep the business going despite not being in the office and they have kind of clung on to that. And gone, well, actually, we can do our jobs just as well at home as we can in the office because we did it all through COVID and we survived. And for some companies, maybe did even better during COVID for some people, some of their best, it was their best year or best few months. So they've always used that as something to kind of cling on to and say, well, actually, here's some evidence. Whereas now I think perhaps, yeah, employers are perhaps a little bit fed up um, with that excuse and going, well, it's not COVID anymore. It's, It's 2024. COVID was... Three, four years ago now, times are different, times have changed. So, this is their way of fighting back.
1: I mean, it sort of doesn't surprise me that her employer objected to this, considering I feel like in most companies, the senior staff are the ones who are expected to set an example. And if you've got a senior manager working full time from home without perhaps a really compelling reason, then it would be quite difficult in that situation to persuade employees all the way down the various rungs of the ladder that they all have to come in for a mandated number of days each week. But it's interesting when we
2: talk about talent retention, especially with younger people coming in, your point there saying that how in those first few weeks or months or even that first year coming into the office is so important. But a lot of the time, once that sort of probationary period is up graduates younger employees that are just coming into the workforce will still expect some level of flexibility Mm. I don't know anyone that is going to go into the corporate world expecting to be in the office five days a week especially if you've applied for a role where you know that flexibility is available or guaranteed if that suddenly changes how are you then going to guarantee that that person stays how are you going to make it kind of make it worth that person's while if that's one of the reasons why they wanted to come and work for you is a huge sin you know something that kind of clinches the deal for a lot of um graduates younger people they want to go work in the corporate world they want to step kind of get their foot on the ladder into the working world having that option for flexibility is crucial for a lot of them um so if you suddenly take that away or make that increasingly difficult or make having those conversations more hostile how are you then going to ensure that they don't suddenly jump ship and go somewhere where they know it's definitely guaranteed and they're not
0: going to have to fight for it i think that's a good point so i think what we're essentially saying is yes this may embolden leaders to force their employees back into the office Mm -hmm. but they should be careful with how they're using that potential power because Yes, you may get some very resentful, bitter stuff coming in, but that's not really what you want because you they're not going to stay there for long or be happy or be effective. So proceed with caution. Now, growth is always on CEOs' minds, but the macroeconomic climate has not been kind to businesses last year. What is on the agenda this year, Antonia?
1: Yeah, so this was the topic of our latest MTR survey. So specifically, where do CEOs see growth opportunities in 2024? And it was surprised no one to hear that AI was one that came up time and again. CEOs did, however, identify a range of uses beyond just generating content, which I kind of feel like was the sort of buzzy topic in 2023. Eldar Tuvi, he's the CEO of Vertice, is an example of this. He said, data has long been described as the new oil powering modern businesses. But the reality is that most companies have struggled to meaningfully analyse it at scale. 2024 will see this change as businesses take advantage of AI to transform large volumes of data into actionable insights that will inform everything from new product development to global expansion. The shape of executive teams will start to change to accommodate this shift, and I expect to see an uptick in the number of C-level positions dedicated to overseeing data this year. He also added, which I thought was interesting, I also believe that 2024 will be the year that quantum computing becomes mainstream. That doesn't mean that people will have a quantum computer in their living rooms, but I think more businesses will be able to integrate the technology in a meaningful way. Complex financial modelling, optimising prices and detecting fraud and cybercrime are all promising use cases. And I thought that point was quite interesting, as I know a number of other responses mentioned perhaps the appointment of a chief artificial intelligence officer. Rob Dartnell, the CEO of cybersecurity firm Sec Alliance, thinks that growth in the EU as our nearest and biggest market will be key over the next couple of years. To quote him, he says, This is especially important as the Middle East is likely to become further destabilised. Much of Africa is stalling, and some of the BRICS nations are taking a more nationalist approach to growth and favouring homegrown or regional solutions. And one last one. We had a shout out to Gen Z and their successors, Generation Alpha, from MediaWorks founder and CEO, Brett Jacobson. He honed in on where he sees the investment opportunities in 2024 and said, Investors should back those brands that follow through on their stated social, cultural or environmental beliefs, as they're the ones winning powerful Gen Z and Gen Alpha fans. A word of caution for those that say and don't do. They'll find you out and call you out. Like it all over it, I'm afraid cancel culture has the power to decimate share value. It's interesting speaking about
2: data being the new oil. We ran an op-ed last week on MT from Xander uh, Hall, who is the marketing and business development executive at consultancy Kundal, who within the piece he quoted Jamie Lerner, who's the CEO of Quantum, saying, quote, Most companies know that they are generating massive amounts of data, but what they may not realise is that 80% of that data is unstructured. Data like video, imagery and rich media files. Um, He adds that much of this data is unexplored and it often contains learnings that are valuable to the business. Um, And he uses medical research data as an example, similarly to, to some of the examples that you mentioned Complex financial modelling and optimising prices and detecting cybercrime as well. Lerner also said the storage solutions of today are vital components in being able to extract value and meaning from vast quantities of unstructured data. Yet businesses still misunderstand storage to be simply that, where the data lives, passive and dormant. So perhaps. I think this is where a lot of the confusion around AI technology comes from. The simple fundamentals surrounding data and where it needs to be stored are perhaps unclear or unknown to a lot of leaders. So perhaps kind of stripping it back to basics and starting there is where they need to start from before tackling
0: all of this very new and shiny technology. So yet again, data is going to be um, a really important part of 2024, or chief execs need to try and wrap their heads around it that's it for this week thanks for listening to management today's leadership lessons podcast if you enjoyed it please subscribe find us on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts